The Old Testament reading for today is Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. Let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's holy word. The pericope heading above this chapter is the Lord's Day of Vengeance. And so this Old Testament text does have to do with the day when the Lord will pour out His judgment upon all mankind Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bezorah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Let us go now to Revelation chapter 19. The sermon text for today is Revelation 19, verses 11 uh, through 21. Here John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So far the reading of God's holy word, we pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it and our application of it to our lives. Uh, Brothers and sisters, you notice that we are rapidly approaching the end of our study of the book of Revelation. And I really do have mixed emotions about this. I I look forward to what's next, uh, which, Lord willing, will be a careful consideration of the book of Genesis. And so we will go from the last book to the first. 
Uh, but I really have come to love this book that at one time seemed so intimidating and very impractical to me. Uh, now uh, I can say when, when I think of the book of Revelation, I think of a book that is relatively clear and one that is immensely helpful to the people of God. And so the thought of the book of Revelation in, indeed does now somehow warm uh, my heart and it encourages my soul. Before it just seemed like muddy water to me. To me it seemed very impractical, but now the book of Revelation actually warms my heart. It encourages my soul and, and I pray that this is true of you. Uh, this was not something that I could have said five years ago, uh, but I can say it today. Um, my hope though is that we would finish our study of the book of Revelation very strong. Uh, these last two and a half chapters are most glorious in my opinion. Um, but they are often misinterpreted. I think this is especially true of chapter 20, which we will come to next week. And so we should not let off the throttle as we come to the finish line of of this prolonged study, Uh, but we should finish very strong. We should concentrate. We should handle the book with great care, and we shall labor to apply the text to our own lives through to the very end. We've been in the study for over a year now. It's been a long one. Uh, but it is coming to a conclusion rather rapidly. I wonder if you would allow me to remind you of the seven principles that have helped to guide us in our interpretation of this book over the past year. It feels like it's time for for a reminder like this. Uh, These principles were introduced to you in sermons number two and three of this series. Um, I have reminded you of some of these principles along the way. Uh, A couple of them I have mentioned so many times that I think you've probably grown tired of hearing them. Uh, But I would like to quickly list them for you now to remind you of them so that we might continue to use them as a help to us as we approach the finish line of of Revelation chapter 22, verse 21. Uh, These principles are drawn, remember, from Dennis Johnson's commentary called Triumph of the Lamb, and I found found them immensely helpful. Uh, First of all, When we approach the book of Revelation, here is a reminder. We must remember that the book of Revelation is is a book that was given to reveal. Do you remember this principle that was stated early on in our study together? The book is given to reveal. The name itself suggests that its purpose is to take things that are mysterious and to make them clear to us. And so if the book only makes mysterious things more mysterious, then perhaps we have the wrong approach in our interpretation of this book. Two, we must remember that Revelation is a book to be seen. Uh, This book communicates truth via symbol. Its literary genre is prophetic and apocalyptic. And so to take the book literally whenever possible is to ignore its genre. Indeed, John was shown that which would take place as the first two verses of the book indicate. John saw visions and those visions are filled with things symbolic. And this we have found to be true during our study of this book. Three, we must remember that numbers count in the book of Revelation. In other words, the numbers that we encounter in this book are also symbolic. Uh, This we have seen with the numbers 3, 4, 6, 7, 10, 12, and their multiples 24, 666, and 144,000. And this we will encounter again in the closing chapters with the mention of the numbers 1,000, 12, and 144. And so numbers function symbolically in the book of Revelation. And I am urging us now to strive for consistency in our handling of the numbers found in the book of Revelation. They are symbolic. Four, remember that the book of Revelation makes sense only in light of the Old Testament. 
Uh, Put another way, the key to understanding the symbolism of the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. And so, no, we are not free to take the symbols of the book of Revelation and to interpret them any way we please, but we are to allow the scriptures to interpret scripture. The Old Testament, and in many cases the New Testament, functions as a key and as a guide to our interpretation of this symbolic book. And so to look to current events as the key is foolish. To look to the rest of Scripture is wise, for this is what the author clearly intended. You do understand why this needs to be said, because some, when they hear you say the book is to be interpreted symbolically, they get nervous thinking, well, then you can make it out to be whatever you want it to be. It is now a wax nose for you to shape into the shape that's pleasing to you. Well, no, it is symbolic, but there is a key, a guide. There are boundaries for us provided by the Old Testament and also the New. Five, do not forget that revelation concerns what must soon take place. And this statement is to be understood not from our vantage point, living now in 2018, but from the vantage point of those who originally received the letter in the first century A.D., the book of Revelation concerned for them things which must soon take place. Uh, This is what the book says, For it was to them that John wrote, saying, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. This is what the original recipients of the letter living in the first century A.D. heard, that these things concern things that must soon take place. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near, says Revelation 1, 1, and also verse 3. And remember that the same thing is repeated at the end of the book. These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, Revelation 22, verses 6 through 7. And so any interpretation that pushes the fulfillment of the majority of the prophecies contained in this book way off into the future from the perspective of the first century audience, I think should be met with immediate suspicion given that it contradicts what the book says most directly about itself. Indeed, some things in this book do have to do with the time of the very end. Some things in this book have to do with the return of Christ and the final judgment and the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth. But it is clear and plain where those references do exist. But most of the book describes how things will be in the time between Christ's first and second comings. So indeed, the words of Revelation 1.1 are true. This book did reveal and does reveal things that must soon take place. For more often than not, it describes how things will be in the here and now, leading up to the consummation of all things. Six, remember that Revelation is written for a church under attack. And so the objective of the book, as, as we have seen, is to urge the Christian to persevere in the midst of tribulation. That is the the whole point of the book. It is to urge the Christian to persevere, to stand up, to conquer, to overcome, even when facing uh, persecution. And how sad it is that most preachers today will say that the church will not be here to experience tribulation. I really hardly can imagine a more backwards and unbiblical teaching 
No, instead, the book of Revelation reinforces the words of Christ when he spoke to his disciples in a most direct way, saying, I have said these things to you, that in in me you may have peace. In the world, he said to them, you will have tribulation, but take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. Now, the book of Revelation portrays the church as being under constant assault. Uh, the type and the intensity of the, the assault will vary from time to time and from place to place, but the church will always experience pressure. And the book of Revelation says, persevere, conquer, overcome, remain faithful in Christ. And it shows why we should by providing us with the heavenly perspective on things we experience in this world. Seven, remember that revelation shows above all else that the victory belongs to God and to Christ. That is what the book of Revelation shows. Why persevere? Why overcome? Why stand firm? Well, it is because that in the end and even now, the victory belongs to God and to Christ, even if this is not the way that things appear. And so the source and foundation of all of the encouragement that we receive in this book is this. Though it looks as if evil has won, though it looks as if our enemies are too strong for us, though it looks as if Christ has been defeated and the dragon has won, the truth is that Jesus the Christ has conquered and is bringing all things to their God-ordained end. Therefore, take courage and persevere in Christ. And so these seven principles were presented way back in in sermons two and three of this series. And I think they've been a very helpful guide to us, to help us in our interpretation of this book. And I pray that they remain a help to us as we desire to finish this study strong. In sermon four, I presented seven observations concerning the structure of the book of Revelation. And, And all of them were very important. I just want to remind you of the seventh which was that the book of Revelation repeats. I've put it also this way, and I I prefer to say this word because it just feels good to say it, and it sounds much more impressive. The book of Revelation recapitulates, doesn't it? In other words, the book is not ordered chronologically as if the order of events in the book corresponds to the order of events in human history. Instead, the book is ordered thematically. It provides us time and again with different perspectives on the very same event. It provides us with different perspectives on the same period of time, be it the time immediately preceding the last day, the last day itself, the consummate state, or the entire church age. The book is constantly repeating itself. And now that we are in chapter 19, I think I can ask you the question, how many times has the return of Christ and the final judgment been shown to us In the book of Revelation, I don't really expect you to have an answer to that with an exact number. I don't even have one prepared for you. It's not the point that I'm trying to make. But you you know already as we have progressed now into chapter 19 that we have been shown something of that last day when Christ returns and does pour out His wrath or does judge. We have been shown something of, of that event from different vantage points over and over again in the book of Revelation. In fact, the very first reference we have, or the very first portrayal that we have of the time of the end was found all the way back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. You remember the opening of the sixth seal. Behold, there was a great earthquake, 
and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone free and slave hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Where is that passage found? Not in Revelation 19, 20, or 21, not in Revelation 22, but in Revelation chapter 6. And so that passage does describe the day when the wrath of God and the Lamb are poured out. It is a depiction of the last day, and it is found early on. In the book, and there are many other passages like this one peppered throughout the book which provide us with a different perspective of that last day. And so, brothers and sisters, the book is not ordered chronologically, but it does repeat over and over again. And I think you have seen this clearly uh, demonstrated. And so, why the prolonged introduction here? And why all of the review of things that you have heard, some of them over and over again? It is so that we might finish strong. Uh, Those of you who know your eschatology well really understand why I am trying to drive this home now because you know we are rapidly approaching Revelation chapter 20 where many of these principles become very important in handling that text properly. Let us consider what is happening now here in the book of Revelation, though, in chapter 19, verses 11 and following. Notice that there is a lot of repetition found in chapters 18 through to the end of 20. We are again and again shown something of the last day when Christ will return to rescue those who are His, to pour out His wrath upon His enemies, and to judge those not in him, and to make all things new. So there's lots of repetition crammed into a very small space here in Revelation chapter 18 through 20. Indeed, we were shown something about the last day way back in 612 and and in many other places, but here uh, references to the last day are very concentrated. They are also very detailed. Remember that in chapter 18, it was the judgment of the harlot who is called Babylon, that was described to us. Do you remember that? It wasn't long ago that we considered it. Ironically, uh, she is said to be judged not directly by Christ, but will in fact be devoured by the beast upon whom she once so happily sat and the king symbolized by the ten horns of the beast. And so I will not here rehash the meaning of all of that in detail, but for now recognize that at the end of time, the great cities and the great cultures of the world, which do seduce men and women to worship the things of this world instead of their creator, will experience a form of judgment. It will not be directly by God, perhaps, but God will permit self-destruction to take place. The beast and all that he symbolizes will turn on the harlot and all that she symbolizes to devour her. Revelation 17, 15 through 18 makes this clear. These two, who ever since the fall of the world so happily worked together, will in the end self-destruct. You remember the vision then. The beast and upon the beast is this harlot. And she is there riding and they work together to seduce and to oppress the people of God. But at the end of the time, there will be some sort of self-destruction that takes place. 
is what the text seems to be indicating. The judgment of God is poured out upon the harlot. And that is what Revelation 18 has described to us. Now look, that here. notice that here in chapter 19, we find a description of the, ju- of the judgment of two other figures. Look at verse 19 of Revelation 19, where John writes, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured along with who, brothers and sisters? Also the the false prophet, who is that beast that rose not from the sea but from the land, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And so here what we have is a description of the judgment of the two beasts that were first introduced to us in Revelation chapter 13. The beast is captured. He is the beast that John saw rising from the sea in Revelation 13.1. And so too, the false prophet is captured. He is the same as the beast that was seen rising out of the earth in Revelation 13.11. This is the one who deceived men and women to receive the mark of the beast and to worship his image. At the end of time, then, these two will be captured by Christ and his army, and they will be thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, we are told. And those who belong to them and follow them will be slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse, that is to say, from the mouth of Christ. And so what I want you to recognize, brothers and sisters, is that by the very end of chapter 19, the return of Christ has again been described to us. When he returns, he will pour out his wrath upon all of his enemies. All will be slain who do not belong to him. That is the picture that we have painted for us by the end of Revelation chapter 19. The beast symbolizing political powers that persecute, symbolizing nations and kings and their armies who oppose Christ and all who belong to him will be judged on the last day, thrown alive into the lake of fire. The false prophet also, who symbolizes those social and religious and economic institutions that the evil one uses to urge the worship, not of Christ, but of the beast, will also be judged, thrown alive into the lake of fire, we are told. And all who follow after these will also be slain. In verse 21, we read, and the rest of were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And so you do understand that this passage describes the judgment that will come upon people at the end of time, don't you? We have to remember that we're in the book of Revelation, which communicates truth via symbol. Will there actually be a sea beast roaming the earth on the last day? Of course not. Will there be a land beast, whatever that means, uh, you, you know, with, with, with heads and horns, uh, roaming the earth? Uh, of course not. But these beasts do symbolize people, human institutions, that when Christ returns will be judged. An end will come to them fully. And finally, those governments will be thrown down. Those political institutions will be conquered. Those economic systems used to oppress will be 
put away by Christ at the end of time. That is what the symbolism of the book of Revelation is communicating to us here. We have to be consistent in interpreting the symbolism. And also references made to their armies. Uh, And so the people who do belong to them and serve them and work with them and for them to carry out the bidding of the evil one. And so, yes, in the vision, we see two beasts and the multitude of people that follow them. But we should remember that these beasts symbolize people, people who have positions of power within governments, people who are kings, people who are governors, people with armies, within armies, people who teach false things, people who use powers of many kinds to turn the screws on God's people. Uh, These are the ones who have listened to the false prophet themselves, who have bowed before the beast from the sea, who now do their bidding. Put another way, these are the ones who have taken the mark of the beast, who at the end of time will be judged personally by Christ. This is what is symbolized for us here in Revelation chapter 19. And isn't that what the announcement of the angel in verse 17 tells us? This angel cries out with a loud voice, and he cries out saying this, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, and he says, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And so here, this call goes out to the birds of heaven. And I think this is meant, this gruesome scene is meant to be seen in comparison to the call that was put out to the faithful to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb just a little bit earlier. But here, the birds are called to feast upon this great slaughter that will take place at the end of time at Christ's return. And so do you see it? Who has been judged then by the end of chapter 19? Well, the harlot, Babylon, has has, has fallen. Self-destruction has taken its toll on her. She is left desolate, a wasteland now. Uh, But also that great beast that was seen rising out of the sea has been judged, who did persecute the people of God. And also that great beast that rose from the land, also known as the false prophet, has been judged. So these three have been put, put to death. They, they have been removed from the scene by Christ at His second coming. Who is left, brothers and sisters, to be judged then? Who is left to be taken care of? What figure that we have been introduced to in the book of Revelation is left to be dealt with by Christ. If you are paying attention carefully to the narrative, you would say, what about that dragon? What about the dragon who did motivate all of them to do what they did? What about the dragon that we were introduced to at the very beginning? When will that ancient serpent whom the beast, the false prophet, and the harlot did serve, when will that one meet his end? And I want you to look ahead with me briefly to see that this is what chapter 20 will describe. Chapter 20 does not follow chapter 19 chronologically, brothers and sisters. But it repeats yet again, and it provides for us another perspective on the dragon and his career and his judgment. Look now to verse 7 of chapter 20, where we read, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan, there is the reference to him, who is portrayed as a dragon earlier in the book of Revelation, Satan will be released from his prison, 
and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Doesn't this sound familiar? It's almost as if we've heard something about this battle before. Yes, it's because the book of Revelation uh, repeats. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So, so there is this situation where on the last day, the people of God, they find themselves under assault. The nations have gathered around to assault them, right? Uh, so this is the situation on, on the last day. Uh, but look what happens. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Consumed who? All of the enemies of God's people. It's another depiction of what we have just heard here in Revelation chapter 19. But here we have this added, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Revelation chapter 20 does continue on with the Uh, the description of the judgment of the enemies of God. The harlot has been judged. Also, the two beasts that were described to us earlier have been judged. But here, the devil himself, the the, the, the dragon, has been judged by the end of Revelation 20, verse 10. And so when will this happen? It will all happen when Christ returns. It will happen on that last day when Christ returns. It will happen on the same day when the beast, the false prophet, and all who belong to them will be judged. It will happen when Christ returns. He will return to do very many things, to rescue those who belong to him who are under assault, to pour out his wrath upon the enemies of God, to cast the devil himself into the lake of fire, to be tormented day and night forever and ever. When Christ returns, he will judge, after which he will make all things new. If we assume that the book of Revelation is organized chronologically, we're going to be very, very confused especially in this section here. Indeed, we will be confused throughout the book, not knowing what to make of all the references to the end peppered throughout, nor knowing what to make of the mention of the birth of Christ in 12.1. But we will be especially confused here in chapters 18, 19, and 20 as we try to fit all of this onto a timeline. It is far better to see that the book is organized thematically and that it does recapitulate, providing for us different perspectives on the same period of time, in this case, the last day when Christ returns. More broadly, the book of Revelation describes to us how things will be in the whole time between Christ's first and second comings. It tells a story. I think that is why the book has been so enjoyable in some respects. It tells a story to us. It paints a a picture telling us about the challenges that we will face in this world and how things will go to the end. It exposes our enemies. It shows their true character and it shows their end so that we might know how to sojourn in this place. I want for you, if you have your print Bibles with you, to turn to Revelation chapter 12. And I want you to notice how Revelation chapter 12, all the way through to Revelation 2010, tells a story. We will, of course, overview things very quickly here. But I want you to see it. And, and seeing it, see it on the pages of, 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 the, of, of, of your print Bibles does help. Remember that in Revelation 12, 1, we were introduced to a woman with child. Do you remember it so long ago? And who is this woman? Remember, she symbolizes Mary, the mother of Jesus. More than that, she symbolizes Israel, who was indeed pregnant with the Christ until he did come 
Even more than that, she symbolizes Eve, who heard the promise of God when he spoke to the serpent who deceived her, when he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so the the, the imagery is complex, but this woman does represent all of those things. Eve was pregnant with the Christ, and she carried within her womb the promise of God concerning a Redeemer who would come from her seed. Israel, too was pregnant with the Christ. Ultimately, Mary, the virgin, was pregnant with the Christ. She symbolizes all of these things. This woman of Revelation 12, who is Eve, Israel, and Mary, was pregnant with the Christ, and she was being harassed even before the Christ child was born. And who was it that harassed her, brothers and sisters? A great red dragon harassed her with seven heads and ten horns, and on his name, and on his head, excuse me, excuse me, seven diadems. In 12.9, we were told that this one, this dragon, is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So do you see how the stage has been set here for this cosmic battle? Very early on in Revelation 12.1, the stage is set. We see that there is a battle that does rage between God and Satan, God's people and those who belong to Satan himself. This dragon pursued the woman. But she was kept by God, being preserved by him in the wilderness. This dragon sought to devour the Christ child, the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, Revelation 12, 5. But the battle between the dragon, the woman, and her child was not over here. The dragon became furious. I'm reading now from Revelation 12, 17. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea, we are told. So so now what are we told? Revelation 12, 17, we see that this dragon is still operating in the world. And who does he pursue? No longer the Christ child, for he has been caught up to the right hand of God the Father, but he pursues the rest of the offspring of, of the woman. And who are they? It is the church. It is those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so this cosmic battle continues to rage even after the resurrection and ascension of Christ to the Father's right hand. The dragon is still pursuing the people of God. So there's a conflict then. There is a battle that rages between the dragon, who is Satan, and Christ. The dragon was confined to the earth at Christ's first coming when Christ was caught up to heaven where he is now enthroned. And so the people of God find themselves under assault. They are pursued by the dragon even still. But notice that the dragon uses means, and they are introduced to us next. The dragon uses the beast from the sea, political powers that persecute, the beast from the land, false prophets, and also the harlot who rides upon the beast from the sea. The seductiveness of the world is what she represents. And these three war against the people of God. These three were introduced to us then successively in chapters 13 through 17. And now notice what we have here in chapters 18, 19, and 20. Each of these enemies of God are now shown as being removed from the scene in the reverse order that they were introduced. That is how the book is structured, brothers and sisters. Not chronologically, but thematically. Who is our supreme enemy? It is Satan himself, the dragon. Bring him out onto the stage and let's show what he is for a moment. And what does he use in order to 
persecute the people of God. He uses the beast from the sea, political powers that persecute, bring him out onto the stage so that we might show what he truly is. And what else? Also, the beast from the land, who is the false prophet, bring him out onto the stage so that we might show his true character. And also, the evil one uses the world and the seductiveness of the world. We will call her a harlot. Her name is Babylon. Bring her out onto the stage to show her true character. Church, here are your enemies. The dragon, the beast, the false prophet, the harlot. Here they are. See their true character. See how ferocious indeed they are. Be be sober concerning the assault that they do constantly bring upon you. Here are the enemies of God. Don't they look ferocious as they are described to us in Revelation 12 and 13 and 17? They do. It seems almost overwhelming for us to think of, of, of battling against enemies such as these. But then what begins to happen in chapter 18? The harlot is removed. What happened to her? Well, the beast upon which she rode devoured her. She was made desolate. She is gone. She is, she is nothing. Should you fear the harlot? Should you be drawn to her seductiveness then, church? Should you? Not at all. This is her end. She will be consumed in the end. Made desolate. She will be a wasteland. She's not to be something that you are concerned with, something that you are drawn to. But what about those beasts who indeed seem so ferocious? Well, do you notice how quickly they are annihilated? Hardly anything is said about them. Christ comes and he removes them with his word. They're both thrown into the lake of fire where they are tormented day and night forever and ever. They're gone. Should you therefore fear the beast from the sea, church, those political powers that might persecute from time to time, should you fear them? Not at all. For Christ is Lord of them. He has conquered them already and will conquer them fully in the end. And what about those false prophets? Should you listen to them? Should you give them your ear? No, not at all, for they too will be removed. But what about that dragon who has tormented humankind from even before the fall? They're bringing that temptation to Eve originally and then continuing to harass her and doing war against God throughout human history. Should you fear him? No, in Revelation 20, when we do finally come to that text, we will see that he too will be slain by the word of Christ. That is what the book of Revelation is communicating. It's not chronological, it is thematic. And here a story is being told, the story of redemption. Here is how things will go in the time between Christ's first and second comings. Here are your enemies, and here is the end of the matter. Therefore, persevere in Christ and do not fear. The enemies of God and his people are introduced, one, two, three, four. The promise is that God will persevere those who belong to him, even if they are pursued, tempted, and assaulted on earth by these enemies. And then these enemies are swiftly removed from the scene, having been judged by God and his Christ. Four, three, two, one, they're gone. They're gone. And so do you see how everything then, brothers and sisters, comes to focus upon Christ, who is our champion king? Everything comes to focus upon him in the book of Revelation. The enemies of God seem at first to be so powerful, so terrifying, so ferocious. They are the seven-headed and ten-horned dragon, the seven-headed and ten-horned beast, the beast who speaks like the dragon, and the harlot whose seductiveness made even John the apostle to marvel at him. Right? They are impressive at first, and indeed Christ seems to us to be so distant now. Where is he? Can we see him? No, he is at the Father's right hand. He was long ago caught up to heaven, crucified, buried, raised, and ascended. Uh, We do not see him now, but we see our enemies. That is what we see. They're right before our faces. We feel their power, 
And indeed, they do look so intimidating to us. But what does God's word reveal? What does God's word reveal? God's word reveals that our Lord will one day return. And when he does return, he will slay all of his and all of our enemies with the word of his mouth. We are therefore, brothers and sisters, to walk by faith in the word of God and not by sight. John saw heaven opened. And here is this most glorious scene. And behold, a white horse, the kind of champion war horse that a conquering king would ride. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Christ our king, Revelation nineteen eleven. His eyes are like a flame of fire because he sees all and will judge with purity. At the end of time, and on his head are many diadems, which put the ten counterfeit, counterfeit diadems worn by the dragon and his beast to shame. Do you see it? They had diadems on their heads as well, but they were limited. Their power was limited from the beginning. But here, Christ, our conquering king, has on his head many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Uh, for though we know Christ truly, we cannot comprehend his power and glory fully. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood for his, for he is the one who will tread out the great winepress of the wrath of God that was mentioned back in Revelation 14, 19. The name by which he is called is the word of God. It is God's word that will stand in the end, friends. It is his word that is eternal. And this great warrior king is not alone, but has the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses also. And so who are these? Who does this army of heaven represent? These are his people, redeemed from the earth, who have been caught up with him to meet him in the air on the last day, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. This is the bride of Christ. She has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. These redeemed of the Lord caught up to be with Christ in the air, will immediately return with him to conquer alongside of him. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp, to, to a, or a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. All of this is in fulfillment to that great messianic psalm, Psalm chapter 2, which says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him, who take refuge in the Christ. Lastly, we read that on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, 
And what is, what is his name, brothers and sisters? In verse 16, his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is our Savior. He is our conquering King. And brothers and sisters, this is the story that followers of Christ the world over need to hear. This is why the book of Revelation now warms my heart and encourages my soul instead of leading me to confusion. The point of the book is not to give us a detailed record of everything that will happen in the future and to predict it for us so that we might know ahead of time. The rest of the scriptures say that God is not interested in giving us that information, but what we need to hear is that Christ has conquered. He has triumphed. So that even if the enemies that we face seem so ferocious to us, as if they will never come to an end, as if we are so weak and helpless, we must look not to ourselves, but to Christ our King, for He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We must look to the end of the matter, friends, and the end of the matter is something that we cannot see ourselves, but has been revealed to us by God, by His mercy and grace. And so think of the end of the matter, friends. Uh, the things of this world that seem so attractive to you, look at their end. And do not go the way of the harlot. Her end is destruction. Her path leads only to death. Think also of the end of the false prophet whose words seem so pleasant to our ears. The false prophet will be cast alive in the lake of fire. So pay no attention to his smooth and flattering speech. However he manifests himself to you in this world, pay no attention to it. If it contradicts God's word, then be done with it immediately. Listen instead to God's word, which will stand forever and ever. Look to Christ and trust in Him, for He is the word of God. He is the one who will slay His enemies with that double-edged sword which proceeds from His mouth. Give heed to God's word. Obey the word of Christ if you wish to have life and reject the words of the false prophet. His end is destruction. His path leads only to death. And what about those who persecute you? We're to think also of their end. Think of what Christ will do to those who have assaulted His beloved bride when He returns for her on that last day. I think it is very popular today, brothers and sisters, to talk only about the love and mercy of God. And indeed, God is loving and He is merciful and He is kind. But He is also holy and righteous and just. If you do not believe in a God who will judge in the end, then you do not have the God of the Scriptures, but an idol that you have erected for yourself in the mind and in the heart. If you do not believe in a Christ who will judge in the end, then you do not have the true Christ, but you have a false Christ who is the product of your worldly imagination. And so, friend, you must recognize this, that God and Christ will judge in the end. And concerning this, the Scriptures are so clear, Old Testament and New. And this ultimately should be a comfort to the people of God, particularly to those who have experienced real persecution. This should be a comfort to them to know that God and Christ will set it all straight in the end. And so true, we we are to pray for our enemies, right? That God would have mercy upon them, that they too would be saved. And true, we are also to show love to our enemies. We are to do good, even to those who persecute us. But it is the knowledge that God and His Christ will set things right in the end, which enables us to do this. Why? It is not 
ours to take vengeance. It's not our place. It's God's job. That is something that He will do. It is not ours to pour out wrath. Christ will at the end of time. Indeed, it is this knowledge that God and Christ will judge in the end that enables us to love even those who persecute us. Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. But instead do what? Leave it to the wrath of God. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. It's not your job. It's not your business. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, then feed him. If he is thirsty, then give him something to drink. For by by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And I think that means you will get his attention one way or the other. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. And so, brothers and sisters, how comforting it is for the people of God to know that if we suffer in this world, our Savior, who has Himself suffered, will set it right at the end of time. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank You for the book of Revelation, which does reveal exactly what we need to be revealed. Lord, we do not know, need to know the hour of Your coming or the day, We do not need to know all of the details, the chronology of it even, Uh, Father, but what we do need to know is that Christ will return and that he will return as our conquering king. We also need to be reminded, Lord, that Christ conquered even at his first coming and now sits at the Father's right hand where he rules and reigns. Lord, nothing is outside of your control. So we thank you, Father, for this glorious book which does give us what we need to walk faithfully with you in this world. I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ that we would have the wisdom to take these truths and to apply them to every detail of our lives, Lord. Give us victory in Christ Jesus. Make us faithful pilgrims. Help us to conquer and to overcome. Preserve us to the end, Lord. Make us to persevere. These things we pray in the precious name of Jesus and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.